Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. No, you're not hallucinating, and you haven't missed a whole week since my last podcast, even though uh, it's only been three days since the last time we were together here in the salon. I feel compelled to post a program today, June 10th, 2007, because it uh, has some significance in my life. Not only was it on this day two years ago that I posted the very first podcast from the Psychedelic Salon, but had she lived, today would be my mother's 92nd birthday. Well, I'm sure that uh, you didn't know it was my mother's birthday, several of our fellow saloners have written to ask if I'm going to do anything special for the anniversary program and or for the 100th podcast of this series. Well, several months ago, I did start to think about those questions, but now that the time has actually arrived, I've decided to just keep on keeping on and not do any kind of a retrospective or anything like that. You know, actually, about a year ago, I started collecting some of my favorite sound bites from various programs that I'd planned on using as my 100th podcast, but that uh, quickly became more work than I had time for. But I decided that at least for today's program, I should do something special. And I can think of no better person to have join us here today than Gary Fisher. Back in the summer of 2005, while I was visiting with Gary, I turned on my old cassette tape recorder, uh, and that conversation became podcast number 15. And, uh, in fact, that was the only interview in this series until number 64, when I uh, began doing a few interviews just for these podcasts. Now, I've always felt bad about the quality of that first interview with Gary, and I probably shouldn't have even used it for a podcast, but the content was so important that I did it anyway. Now, I've finally done what I should have done two years ago, and that is to do a little more professional kind of interview with a man who I believe history will record as one of our most important early psychedelic researchers. Here's what the Albert Hoffman Foundation website has to say about him. And I quote, Gary Fisher, Ph.D., is one of the very knowledgeable investigators from the early days of LSD research. He is a clinical psychologist who is one of the pioneer workers in psychotherapy using LSD and psilocybin. His training was with members of the Saskatchewan group who were trained by Al Hubbard. He did extensive work treating schizophrenic and autistic children as well as cancer patients. The impressive results he obtained in these categories give testimony to the remarkable potential these substances offer when administered with wisdom and understanding. And in his book, uh, Higher Wisdom, Eminent Elders Explore the Continuing Impact of Psychedelics, Charlie Grobe writes, In the late 1950s and early 1960s, Fisher conducted pioneering research on the use of psychedelic drugs in autistic and schizophrenic children. He subsequently explored the role of psychedelics in adults with major mental illness and in patients with terminal cancer. He has contributed a number of pivotal articles in the literature on the application of psychedelics with a variety of seriously ill subjects. Fisher was also a collaborator of Timothy Leary in Mexico, the Caribbean, and at Millbrook in New York. Now, 
Parts of our conversation that day were about people and places that, for privacy reasons, need to remain out of the public record, at, uh, at least for another generation or so. But in case you're listening to this podcast in the distant future, at least distant from 2007, you might be interested in knowing that the complete, unedited recordings of all the conversations we've had here in the Psychedelic Salon have been preserved and they're being stored by a friend of mine. But it's uh, doubtful that there's anything of interest there for anyone other than a Ph.D. candidate who's mining for any little scrap of information that hasn't already been squeezed out of uh, more conventional archives. So please don't feel like you're missing anything. As you've probably figured out already, my intention with the conversations we have here in the Psychedelic Salon don't focus as much on the details of the work these early researchers did, but instead on the stories surrounding their work. I figure that over time there will be enough scholars who will go through what records survive and pull out significant details of the work that was done. My role, as I see it, is to provide a little peek into the personalities that surrounded this early research. But if you're looking for more information about the nuts and bolts of what they did, I'm including links to many of their research papers with the program notes to these podcasts. Well, enough in the way of introduction. If I don't quit talking right now, we're not going to have time for today's program, (laughs) which is uh, part of a conversation I had last week when I visited Gary Fisher at his home in Southern California. We began our conversation by looking at some old photos. One of them was of a woman, not young, not old, and rather plain looking, but who had a truly angelic smile that still shined through after all these years. So right now I'll pick up on the part of the conversation where Gary was talking about her and the graduate course that he was teaching at the time. And I didn't uh, give any lectures or anything, but we would make up things for the syllabus so the university was satisfied about I was, that I was teaching courses. And we would call them all kinds of things. Um, but she was very interesting. She... Um, came as a graduate student and um, why she, I don't have any memory of why she was selected by her group and um, to make a terribly long story short uh, during she was just like didn't know what was going on she didn't have a clue because she had been raised as a Catholic and raised um, constantly in, in, in Catholicism she was never exposed to the world. And one day she was sitting there and she stopped and she put her hands up and then she leaned forward and put her hand up to touch mine and she said, I just had a thought. She said, this is the first time I've ever had a thought. You're kidding. Yeah. Wow. And from then on, oh, she was funny. She stopped one of the girls in the hall one day, black girl, and she said, I understand you people smoke marijuana. She said, could I get some and smoke it? Or would you smoke it with me? I want to see what it's all about. Now, how, how old was she, do you think? Uh, so she was a grad student at Nunn, so she must have been in her 30s, I guess. At least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least. But uh, she had a total metamorphosis and ended up, uh, she discovered that she was a lesbian and she took a lover. And she traveled the world um, doing uh, work. 
she's an amazing person. Now, what was your course focused on? Well, what we did all our research on, um, and our dissertations on, see, they were my my dissertations, was all on the use of um, marijuana in different populations and the effect of marijuana. So we did a lot of that. Did she actually get to try it, you know? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. She liked it? Yes, she liked it. But she was this um, untarnished person. It's like, and she still is. She's, I talked to her, I still talk to her on the phone. Mm. And um, she's just a sweetheart. So you, that, that course really kind of helped her to blossom. Oh, completely. Yeah, she says that, um, you know, that's when she bec- uh, she woke up and she became alive. Wow. Uh-huh. And it obviously didn't uh, hurt her uh, commitment to her religious faith that she no. stayed with it. No. no. Yeah, we, we had some nuns in our family, and uh, we still have a priest in our family, of a cousin, and so uh, mm-hmm. I understand what that uh, mm-hmm. culture is like. Yeah. And uh, it's not easy to break out of it. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, she never did break out of it. No, but she at least kind of woke up and... Uh... Well, she um, she translated all of um, the stuff, all the psychedelic stuff, into um, what Catholicism really should talk about, uh, which is sharing and love and uh, grace and forgiveness. And that's what she focused on. And so she changed all of these people over the years because she gave uh, seminars all the time everywhere in the United States around the world. And that's all she ever talked about. She didn't talk about rules, regulations, nothing. Just about... Well, she went back to the basics of what that yes. could be about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Eliminate all those, that male hierarchy and you get back to the core. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, she's um, amazing. This is a nice picture. Oh, that's Laura. That, that Laura, and this was uh, when uh, Kaya uh, was born. Oh. And Kaya now, you know, is... Um, she must be about eight or nine. Oh, she's at least nine. Yeah, it's very tall, mm. very beautiful. And there's Laura. Isn't that a great picture of Laura? It is. That, and that looks like the way she looks last time I saw her. She doesn't mm. change a lot. No, she doesn't. Now, you saw her not too long ago, didn't right. you? Right. And uh, that was in 1999, so this has been um, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was that taken at Laura's house? Yes, this yeah. is taken at Oh, yeah, there's the patio, yeah. yeah. there's the patio. Yeah, you and Charlie went to see uh, Laura uh, this last summer, wasn't there? It was sometime in connection with that new book out about Leary that you uh, couldn't believe that she read to him on his deathbed. Well, I asked her. <laughs> If she did that, I said, Laura, I'm going to ask you because otherwise I'll forget it. And I said, you know, in the book was that that you read to Tim on on his deathbed. And she said, oh, no, no. Silly. (laughs) 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 But, uh, yeah, she's and of course, Charlie and I went out and talked to her most recently about um, Laura and all this. Huxley Institute for Psychedelic Medicine. And she loves the name. Oh, great. great. And she really responded to it. 
really responded to it. Yeah. I think it's, uh, mm-hmm. it, it would do a lot of things. For one thing, it, it really sort of legitimizes the resurgence that's mm-hmm. taking place mm-hmm. now. Because there's, mm-hmm. there's quite a few, you know, there's not as many projects going on as there were when you were doing it, but mm-hmm. compared to zero mm-hmm. ten years ago, there are quite a few now. So, oh, yeah. 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 So that's good. Now this is another picture of Laura. She's always wearing hats when she's always, out Always, always, yeah. always wore hats. Mary always. C. and I were talking about that the other day. You know, I can remember my mother and aunt always wore hats and gloves mm-hmm. to church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was mm-hmm. the 50s. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. Laura looks great in hats. She mm-hmm. uh, pulls it off quite well. Mm-hmm. This is uh, two of the kids. And see, it was 62. August of 62. Mm-hmm. So these were two of the kids that, that were in your, uh, mm-hmm. that you treated? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, they were getting um, to relate to each other because the only thing that he would relate to for a long, long time were bugs. He used to like to go outside and then have his nose under the grass and just bugs. That's all he, his whole world was about bugs. And... um, Oh, here they're learning how to kiss. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's about the age I was when I had my first kiss. I still remember it. (laughs) So they're learning how to kiss. So he he did uh, start relating to... Oh, yeah. Because before anybody come near him, he'd scream. Scream bloody murder and scream. And, and so, how did you treat him then? What what did you? Because back in those days, you didn't have IRBs and all of those. What's things. IRB? Uh, institutional review board that you had to oh. get your protocol approved. <laughs> we didn't have a protocol. No. <laughs> no, we didn't have anything like that. So, so he must have been when you started working with him. What eight, nine, ten, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And and he would scream when people came around him. Yeah, if anybody approached him, he would just scream bloody murder and not let anybody in here. He never looked at anybody. Yeah, this is an um, interim report we did in 63. And Dan Castile was the uh, psychiatrist on the ward. He would never take any psychedelic, mm-hmm. but he was very, very fascinated. And... Um, so this was from April 62 to December, the last of December in 62. And the project you called an investigation to determine therapeutic effectiveness of LSD-25 and psilocybin on hospitalized, severely emotionally disturbed children. Mm-hmm. Oh. So this is the whole write-up of that uh, mm-hmm. That See, frequency of treatment and new treatment program is 1163 and rationale and effective treatment techniques. And You're referring to Duncan Blewett's research there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Blewett and Shoelis. Now, Shoelis, of course, was my mentor. Oh, really? He was my brother-in-law. And he was the one I had my first LSD session with. That was up in Canada? Yeah. But you remember when that was? What? Yes, it was in the late 50s. Late 50s. Because mm-hmm. uh, I just happened to hear uh, the, the podcast I did of Myron, and his first one, uh, experience was uh, in 56. 
April ah. April of fifty six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. So yours was right around there within mm-hmm. a year mm-hmm. or so. Yeah. Also in Canada, both of you. Oh, uh-huh. he went up there to uh, Hubbard's. Um, oh, so he went to Hubbard's. Yeah, yeah. Hubbard, uh, Hubbard is not recognized uh, in the in the um, literature. He never wrote anything, of course, and uh, you, know, you know he was a charlatan as well. I mean, he was a very he was a um, uh, he built airplanes. Yeah. yeah, I knew he had airplanes. He had this alleged OSS CIA connection. Oh, yes. oh, he yeah. had a boat that ran yeah. without gasoline. Oh, yeah, right. And, uh, yeah. and Myron told me one time that, uh, you know, that Hubbard, um, he lent Hubbard money. And then Hubbard came back and wanted more money. And she said, well, you haven't paid me back what I've got. And so he talked Myron into giving him money. And he said, what? He said, uh, Myron's so sweet. He says, what's wrong with me? And I said, well, you're stupid and Hubbard's smart. <laughs> <laughs> what else? He, he laughed and laughed and but, uh, you know, Myron is so uh, seducible. Oh, he's such a gentle yeah, person, you know. That, uh, he's he's a, almost an innocent. <laughs> yes, he is. He is. And uh, so uh, Hubbard was just the opposite. But this paper of Myron's I, I brought up this morning, uh, it starts out with a, a, a meeting Oscar Janiger had in February of 79, mm. which is like 20 years after uh, LSD mm-hmm. started being researched. And... Uh, he describes Hubbard's presence there. He says Hubbard was there in uh, uh, a marshal's uniform, yeah. complete with badge, yeah. gun, and ammunition yeah. belt. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, yeah. He must have been something else. Yeah, because Hubbard, was, you know, all of our model was from Hubbard, because Hubbard was the guy who taught my brother-in-law and um, Duncan Blewett. And and that would explain why uh, St. Veronica's Veil, that painting, right. is used uh, right. throughout your And a single red rose, the Rose of Sharon. We oh, always we used a single red rose all the time. And I always had that picture there. And, and then I always had a picture of the Buddha, too, because a guy painted one for me mm. after a session that he had. Gorgeous. It's up with my daughter now in uh, Washington. But... Um, but you know Hubbard, although he didn't didn't write anything, uh, didn't record anything, he's, mm-hmm. he's very difficult to find any documentation on. And right. yet he had a really profound influence. Profound, profound. He was the father of all of this stuff. He was the one, you know, the Saskatchewan group that was on on schizophrenia was uh, mimicking uh, psychosis. Uh, that's what LSD did. It mimicked psychosis. So they thought, well, if they made people psychotic, they could figure out, you know, how to cure psychosis. And Hubbard said to them, uh, it's easy to make people crazy, but you want to make them sane. And this is how you do it if you want to make them sane. So uh, he was the one who introduced Hoffman and Osmond and Hoffer to this whole approach. Mm-hmm. And, and your... Uh how do you pronounce his name? Shewelas. Shewelas. Mm-hmm. He was your brother-in-law, mm-hmm. and he worked with uh, Humphrey Osmond up there. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And he died about three years ago. Hmm. And of course, Blewett just died recently. Now he was your your brother-in-law and invited you to come up to try LSD. How how did you did you ask him or he asked you? How did the? I don't remember. He was um, I was a complete basket case. <coughs> 
and uh, totally um, in my head, 24/7. And um, I guess the kind. Of, and of course, Nick was. Um, he was. Uh, he would treat anybody. You know, he was just amazing. And Nick was the one who treated that kid uh, with uh, ground mal epilepsy. Oh, Nick okay. was the one who treated him. He was fearless. He had a very Buddha nature to him. He was rather rotund and um, penetrating brown eyes and um, was an amazing person. But, uh, well, he could have talked for 20 years. I wouldn't understand a word he said, you know. So <laughs> he didn't bother, you know. Giving you any prelim, just here, take this. <laughs> and we use very high dosages. He did. In like 500 microgram mm-hmm. range, mm-hmm. like that? Yeah. yeah, so your ego was obliterated and, and you became basically psychotic for quite a while. I know that uh, when Myron took people through his uh, program in Menlo Park, mm-hmm. they had like a six week training course before their first dose of LSD. <laughs> You know, they had Carvagen, and they went through several sessions of that, and they had to go in for uh, evaluations. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I asked him once how many people they turned down, and they did turn a few down, apparently, but not too many. Well, um, there was one woman one time, and I always remember her, and she had been a very good person all of her life. And uh, I was talking about preparing people for LSD sessions, and she uh, said, I don't want to disagree with you, uh, but you could spend your whole life preparing someone for LSD, and it wouldn't be any different if you'd never prepared them for 20 minutes. I said, that's right. <laughs> I, I have to agree with that. Yeah, you know, there, yeah, there's, uh, yeah. I think the, the work to be done is at, at the back end, is uh, when people come down out of it, is uh, when you can really start talking to them about themselves and the experience. Mm. Going in with with uh, no experience, no idea of what it's going to be like, uh, mm-hmm. you can't tell anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, that well, I was. It took me six, seven months to come down from your first trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you told me one time about uh, seeing two little twins uh, shortly after, two little children in a crib or something. Oh, that was Nick's kids. Oh, okay. Yeah, Nick Shuelos's kids. And, uh, yeah, I, was, I started talking to the girl. It was the girl and the boy. And so... How old was she? Well, they were babies. Infants, you know, just yeah. infants. Crawling. And so uh, they were in a um, um, playpen. Mm-hmm. And, the little, and the other one was over at the other side. And so she yells, you know, she communicates to him telepathically, come over here, there's somebody's alive. Over <laughs> here. Somebody you can talk to. So we had this great conversation. Uh, uh, how, how old were you then, Bud? I, I, I could do the math, I guess. But, uh, well, you do the math then, because I was born in 31. Okay, and this was in... 59, 58 or... 58, 31, somewhere. 27. So you weren't quite 30. Right. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. So, but you, did you have your PhD already then? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Uh, and after that experience, did uh, I know Myron? After his first experience, he decided that was going to be a focus of his life. Uh, mm-hmm. How about you? Well, I thought that if it was effective with me, it would be effective with anybody, mm-hmm. and so that's why I thought the most difficult population I'd ever run into was at the hospital was all these psychotic children. Yeah. 
who were just completely, you know. Well, here's a great picture. That's Nancy. This is Nancy. Yes, and she's in a camisole there because otherwise she'd smash her eyes out. And uh, when we um, first treated her, uh, of course, she was tied down to a bed and uh, spread-eagled, and she was skin and bones. Her bones were sticking out of her skin because she she wouldn't eat. Mm. She had marasmus. Do you know what marasmus is? Is that that wasting? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they waste away, and uh, you can give them IV nutrients, and they don't absorb them. Mm. They don't even absorb IV? No. Mm -mm. Wow. And so that's where she, where she was. And so Dan Castile said, well, try Nancy, because if you kill her, she's going to die anyway. So it doesn't matter. I thought, oh, good Lord. So Nancy was um, our first uh, person we treated. How long was this after you had your experience? Uh, years? Or? Oh, no. No? No, because when I came back from Canada, I was already working at the hospital. Mm-hmm with these kids, so I started right away. And uh, Dan just trusted me because he didn't know. And uh, so we, I had a group of people that were sitters, and I would give them a session, you know, mm-hmm. so that they knew what this was all about. But uh, Nancy's first session, I'll never forget, she screamed at the top of her voice for hours and hours and hours. She She's never, still tied down? She's tied down. Uh, we tried to untie her, but, you know, she'd grab her eyes and pull them out. And uh, she never talked. Uh, she never spoke, of course, to anybody. Uh, before that? Before that. She just would scream all the time. Or moan or groan. You know, just moan and groan. And um, Boy, it's she, hard to be around somebody like that. You know, you feel so much, they're in pain, you can't yeah, do anything for them. Yeah, you can't do anything for them. And so we gave her LSD intravenously in the muscle, I am. Mm-hmm. And, uh, a, so, a large dose? Oh, yeah. Five, six hundred miles. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, she was, uh, you know, just screaming from her voice. And finally, out of desperation, I don't know what happened, I just blew it. And I just yelled at her, stop screaming, I can't stand it anymore. I can't leave you, but I can't listen to you scream anymore. So just shut up. <laughs> just Very unprofessional. Yeah. And so she stopped, she opened her eyes, and she looked at me and she said, I have a long way to go, so leave me alone. And went back to screaming. Wow. First time anybody had ever heard her say anything. Wow. So she had fully developed speech. Never used it. And nobody knew. Mm-mm. Mm. So that's Nancy. Now that, that look at her eyes, black. Yeah, her and eyes white. are all black and blue here. Yeah, Is that from her hitting herself yeah, in the eye? Smashing herself. Mm-hmm. She looks like a cute little girl. Oh, she was smart. God, she was so smart. Now you you continued to treat her for like over a year or so, mm-hmm. yeah. And and as I recall, she came around. Oh yeah, oh yeah, she was amazing. I heard her talking to um, <coughs> the um, ward attendants one time, and she said um, she didn't know I was listening, and she said, uh, 
well, I've I've got the days I've got the night staff uh, bamboozled, uh, so I can manipulate the hell out of them. I can make them exactly do what I want, and so I said. And then I was there, you know, behind her, and I said, "Oh, you can, huh?" And she went, "Oh God, now you'll tell them, won't you?" And I said, "Yep." <laughs> she was smart. Oh, smart as a whip. Smart as a whip. So smart she eventually whip. got where she could be unconstrained. Oh, yes. And wasting yes, disease went yes. away. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, and um, she had amazing... Um, she'd been raped by her grandfather. Mm. And she relived that over and over and over again. This is when she was a, like an infant, mm. that she was raped by him. Mm. And... Um, and she was t- brought to the hospital and just left there. Her her family never came and visited or anything. And um, but um, yeah, she was she was a character. And uh, one time, somebody was on the ward, and they were wanted to visit with their children. And so she said, oh, "I'll show you where it is." So she took them down to the room, and she said. Um, it was called the visitor's room. She says, but basically, she says, this is the room where you get to see God. And that's where you had your session? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the room where you get to see God. Now, is she the one that you had to, to tell that you had to stop the treatment? No, that was Patty Smith. Okay. Yeah. Oof. I'll tell you about yeah. that. And here's, he's learning how to smile. Is this the, the boy that liked the bugs? Yeah. He's learning how to smile. <laughs> and he doesn't know how to smile, but um, yeah, he looks pretty old. He must be ten, eleven, probably. Yeah, yeah, it's all in here somewhere. And so these poor kids were just like, not now. Was he schizophrenic or autistic? We didn't make any uh, differentiation. I think what we finally decided that the autistic kids, the kids who were really autistic, I think we dropped them. Because uh, they were very young. In fact, the youngest was three years old. What was interesting about her, she was, uh, it'll be in here somewhere, she was a little over th- three years old. And, um, and uh, she would never let anybody touch her. And she, no- she didn't have any speech. And cute as a button, but would never let anybody touch her. And after one session, what she wanted to do was sit on your knee all the time. She wanted to come up and sit on your knee and pat you and feel you. And now during a, a se- and again, that was a high-dose session with, with a three-year-old? Well, it'll, be, paper. it'll be here somewhere. I'll show you the rest of it. Now, is this paper published anywhere? No. Wow. Now, is this all confidential or could, could this be published? Oh, I'm sure Dan is dead and gone. I mean, we could take out the name of the hospital. Oh, yeah, we'd have to take, take out, out the, the name, name of the hospital. hospital. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they uh, they purged all the files. The because hospital? I went back there years later and uh, wanted to uh, see the kids. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, that we're treated with LSD. And they said it never happened. And they had taken all of these... Well, you'll see what what we did. We had sessions from all these kids. These are all your uh, notes from the sessions with the kids? Wow. See, we had... Oh, yeah. This is what I don't want to throw away. Right. See? 
So we had all of this done, and they went through the files and destroyed them all and said it never happened. Wow, so this is the last copy of it. The only copy. The only. The only copy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would uh, certainly hope that there's some way we can get these, uh, you know, cleansed of uh, information that that shouldn't be public and Mm -hmm. get them... uh, Scanned and made available for researchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the people at Airwood might be able to get a grant to do that or something. I'll mm-hmm. have to talk to them about it. But mm-hmm. this, you know, this is valuable information know, that that's going to be totally lost. And yeah. as Charlie said the other day, you know, even from a dead start right now, it take mm-hmm. ten, fifteen mm-hmm. years to get back mm-hmm. to where you mm-hmm. were, where you left off. Mm-hmm. That's August '62. That's one of the attendants, and that's me. And that's Nancy, and these are that's Coralie. She's very, very young, and that's also one of the kids. Well, you know, I wouldn't have noticed that with known that was you, mm-hmm. but you look like one of those uh, sixty surfer dudes there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> with the shades and everything. That's a really cool picture of you, actually. And look at Nancy leaning there against you. Yeah, these you really must have established some wonderful rapport. With oh, these kids. yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. And here's Nancy again. Now she's still constrained there. Huh? Yeah. It was this was this the room where you did the session? No. No. Okay. Um, um, she went through a long, long progression where finally we'd take her out of the uh, camisole and she'd put uh, Kleenexes on her hands and say, the Kleenexes are stopping me from, you know, hitting myself. And I'd grab the Kleenexes, you know, tell her she was full of bullshit. And so she, you know, hit me. <laughs> and uh, so she'd get the Kleenex again and put it back and said, no, the Kleenex is, I need it. And I said, you don't need it. You know, we'd scream at each other about that. And here she's smiling. Uh. Isn't that a great shot? That really is. Yeah, that's a nice picture. She she looks so normal here, you know. Yeah. She's out of the camisole there. See, she's got her dress. Yeah, on. yeah. She's yeah. dressed up, holding a little purse. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to uh, get these pictures scanned. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You must. And here is one of the um, wives of one of the guys. Uh, that would help and she was pregnant then and this is one of the girls and uh, she actually got so well that uh, she left the hospital and went to ordinary school with an ordinary family oh wow mm-hmm. again was, was LSD treatment uh, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. psilocybin do you use psilocybin sometimes well they're the all the papers said that uh, yeah. so it's scattered throughout huh? yeah I'll show you how did, how did you determine which uh, substance to use? <laughs> Lots of guessing. <laughs> Lots of guessing. And that's Nancy. Oh, okay. Again, out of the camisole. Mm-hmm. She was active, clapping her hands. Yeah. And this is one of the little boys who never talked. He's smiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boy, these poor kids living in these worlds. Oh, these wards were unbelievable. I mean, they were just destitute. Um, And feces all over the place because kids would get feces and throw them. 
and there was nothing in the wars because if they had any furniture they would be all wrecked and so it was this barren nothingness mm. it was just a nightmare yelling and screaming probably. Mm-hmm. oh yeah and twirling mm-hmm. like Patty twirled all the time mm-hmm. that unless she was bound up she was twirling from bump into things she was blind she would mm-hmm. bump into everybody and then people would hit her you know because they would bump into yeah. her ah it was a nightmare oh. But I guess, you know, not only a nightmare for the kids there, but for all the people that had to, mm-hmm. to work with them. Are there still wars like that today? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. I know that um, uh, one of these little boys, when he took LSD, and and we were in this room, and he was looking out of the window, and he was very pensive. This is a kid who never talked before, you know. And he said, Lee State Hospital, he said, what a strange place to come back to. To come back to? Because mm-hmm. 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 he had been in nirvana, you know. Yeah. He had been yeah. in complete nirvana. Mm-hmm. And here he was, back. Now, their, their re-entry, all re-entries are like gradual coming back from, coming down from a, a trip. Yes, and coming down, they, of course, they would scream and yell and say no, you know, that they didn't want to come down. Mm. That's Nancy again. She was a very old, old soul. Sometimes she looked like she was 200 years old. Mm. See, what we did, we had too many kids. We couldn't keep up with them. Um... We have given treatment to 12 patients. They range in age from 4 years, 10 months, to 12 years, 11 months. Average age is 9 years. See, back then in those days, um, you really didn't pay any attention to symptoms because the kids we had were so disturbed. And of course, um, as I say, some of them didn't have any language at all. Okay, you've got dosage charts here and everything. Usual dosage, dosage 200 to 300. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we would use psilocybin with LSD. Oh, yeah. And it's uh, 100 mics of psilocybin with 10 milligrams, or 100 mics of LSD, mm-hmm. 10 milligrams psilocybin, to 300 mm-hmm. LSD and 10 psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Usual dosage, uh, 10 psilocybin, 200 LSD. Mm-hmm. And these are young kids, you know. They didn't weigh anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we uh, sometimes use Librium. Remember Librium? Sure. Years oh, ago? Yeah. Yeah. Librium and Methadrum. We use a pre-treatment medication in 10 session. 5 milligrams methadrine. No, we just, you know, made things up. Just to try to, just trial and error. Mm-hmm. Oh, everything was trial and error. And then as of 1st of... January of 63, we took the kids who had shown the best improvement mm-hmm. and worked with them exclusively. Because otherwise, um, you know, we would do three or four sessions a week, and that was a lot. Oh, Lord. Because you're talking eight to 12 hours at least, mm-hmm. aren't you? Mm-hmm. So you had to rotate sitters, I would imagine. Yeah, we had a lot of sitters. Um, see, these are all the... Um, the dates and the dosages. God, here's a bunch of notes in here, too. And these are kids who would never touch. You know, they'd never get near anybody. 
And this is that picture of them kissing, obviously, as well after an LSD session. I mean, they weren't on anything then. They were uh, right. They they just uh, started to come back yeah. into the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Would they regress after weeks or months after they had a treatment, uh, or did they? they show? Well, we didn't have them long enough to know uh-huh. because everything stopped abruptly. But at, at, from what you were seeing, it, did it look like it was making a permanent improvement? Oh, yeah. Or they didn't oh, have to keep yeah. taking it? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It was cumulative. Yeah. So that's the one who told me to go to San Francisco and find the guy who had the drugs and to tell him, please, Mr. So-and-so, give LSD and psilocybin to Gary, Gaway, because Patty really needs it. Mm. You know, and kids tell you this. I mean, you just, uh, you know, you just cry. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, mean not, uh, oh, it's uh, awful. Just awful, awful, awful. And we had to leave them all because we had nothing to do. So they just had to be abandoned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were all abandoned. Uh, well, that had to take a toll on you as well. Oh, it was a nightmare. I imagine. Did you do any LSD research after this? Uh, this was yes. officially shut down. Or? Well, it was shut down, but I uh, did my work with uh, cancer patients after this. Oh, okay. But the major problem seems to be that we cannot find any evidence that the superintendent ever approved the project. This is from the head of research for the state of California that um, apparently can. Cont- Parental consents were requested, but the actual contents are not in all the records. This poses some problems, on and on and on. Well, we didn't get permission from anyone to do anything. They had no idea what we were doing. With the present fear about LSD, we're understandably jittery about any publicity. It occurs to me... And if the state hospital is not identified and the publication is in a professional journal, any repercussions might be avoided. So yeah, what, that was, when that was, was in 68, March of 68. Okay. And you said that your sitters, that you would take them through a session. Uh, these are like hospital volunteers. And would you do them in a group? Or a well, there was, um, well, let's see. Here. Personnel in attendance, Fisher, Tom Parsons and Con Cowan, Sonny Strom, Castile. These are the people in attendance. Five people at least. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, we would have these kids tied down, and so we would have to sit on either side of them and hold them because they would throw themselves around and hurt themselves. Now, this was the first session for this person. I noticed here at... Uh a little over an hour in, it said, Sitter held patient's hand. Patient grasped Sonny's fingers firmly and would not let go. So, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> this all gives me... A, we, I gave LSD to a lot of, quote, normal people. Mm-hmm. And this one guy was very tall and uh, very strong. He was probably 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, I spent the whole session under a coffee table with him hanging on. He was hanging on to me for dear life. He wouldn't let me go. <laughs> and God, I had to piss so bad. But finally, I pissed my pants. I couldn't <laughs> do it. Couldn't hold any longer. But he was just hanging on, and he was terror. Wouldn't matter what we would say, he never said anything. 
He was just terrified. And he was a CEO of a big corporation. I guess he didn't come back for a second, huh? You know, he, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. What about well, of course, I don't know the, uh, the end result of it either. I don't remember. Right. You know, if he finally got over that. But I know that we were under a coffee table for hours and hours and hours. You know, the, the hazards of being a sitter oh. need to be uh, enumerated at some point for people. Like, you, you told me a story one time of uh, one of the guys, maybe a security guard there that you kept putting off and putting off. And yeah, he was a social worker. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Big guy, big tall guy, and he choked me. And I let go, you know, I was ready to die because there wasn't anything I could do. I mean, he was seriously choking you. Mm-hmm. How did how did you get him to stop choking you? Well, uh, what happened is that I knew that he was sitting on a load of anger. And uh, that's why I was uh, not wanting to give him a session. He wanted to be part of the group. So finally, Dan Castile said to me, you know, he keeps bugging me constantly. He wants to have a session, so why don't you give him a fucking session? And I said, well, I guess I'll stop playing God. Give him a session. So I think I had five other people lined up to sit on him if we needed to. Well, one by one, they left. One went to get lunch. One went uh, to take messages. One went to do this. One went to do that. And basically, I was alone with him. Because he was quiet. He was lying on the couch quiet all that time. Never said anything. And then finally, so I was closing my eyes, listening to the music, and finally, you know, my skin was just crawling. I opened my eyes, and there he was standing there terrified. Standing there terrified. So he came across the room very slowly, very terrified, and got behind me and started choking me. Well, I weighed 100 and 120 pounds I weighed because it was in there somewhere um, when, I, when I got my uh, citizenship I weighed 120 I weighed 120 for years and years and years and he weighed 300 pounds and so I thought you know he's crazy I'm not going to have a chance I couldn't get to a phone doors were locked couldn't get out the windows were all barred couldn't go anywhere so I thought well I'm going to die so I don't want to die in fear. So I kept telling myself to relax and to relax and let my body relax. And uh, so finally he was choking me and choking me and all of a sudden I felt my body being moved. And then he was sitting on the couch and he held me and was rocking me. Well, I never raised anything with people until they raised it themselves because you never told somebody, um, you know, what they did or what they said during the session because you can't assume they remember anything. So it was about eight, nine months later and he came back and he said, I've just had memories and dreams and he said, I've got to find out if this really happened. And I said, well, what do you think happened? And he said, well, um, I saw you as the devil. And I knew I had to kill you to clear, uh, clear the world of being controlled by the devil. And you were controlling the world and you were the devil. So I had to kill you. And he said, I was terrified to do it. He said, so finally I was choking you to kill you. And you just went very limp, 
And all of a sudden I looked down and you were the baby Jesus. So I picked you up and rocked you. And you were the baby Jesus. Amazing. He remembered that like seven, eight months later. I said, that's exactly what happened. Mm. Totally changed his life. Yeah, well, it would change my life as a sitter. It would have been my last time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take this off and take a break. Okay. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> I'm going to have to cut it off right now, but uh, there will be more of this conversation in next week's podcast when you'll hear one of the funniest and also one of the saddest LSD-related stories that I've ever heard. As uh, as an interviewer, I kind of fell down on the job here because originally it was our intention to get into more detail about what I personally believe to be close to miraculous recoveries by these young children who were treated with psychedelic medicines. Just stop for a minute and think about the transformation of Nancy. You know, that little girl was near death. She hadn't spoken in years and had to be constantly restrained. Uh, Just let me read part of the interim report of this study where Gary writes about her. Female, age 11 years, 3 months, 11 sessions. This patient is considerably improved. When treatment began, she was in a complete bed camisole restraint because she was so self-destructive that she would fatally harm herself. She was incontinent and would not eat. She indulged in preservative and stereotyped behavior and seldom spoke. Extreme range reactions were common. She was a very difficult management problem. At this time, the patient is never in restraint and has not been in restraint for several months. She goes about the ward and yard and is seldom self-destructive. She eats well and takes care of her toilet needs. She can carry on a conversation when she wants to. She has been recently making home visits and now attends hospital school in the mornings. Now consider the fact that this work was done in 1962 and since then, to my knowledge, there's never been any other research of this kind conducted anywhere on the planet. Over 40 years ago, some answers were found to a horrific problem. And because of the insane war on drugs, not only have no advances been made since then, but, but an entire generation of sick children have been abandoned to a life in hell. Now, should our species be fortunate enough to survive for another thousand years, this war on consciousness will most certainly be seen for what it truly is, a, a crime against humanity. And in my humble opinion, the men and women who are participating in the effort to ban all inquiry into the quite obvious benefits offered by these compounds, well, from where I stand, those stormtroopers fall into the same class as the barbarians who burned the Library of Alexandria. Well, that's enough of the dark alley talk for now. Let's get back to some more positive things. Just now you uh, heard us talking about the unpublished paper that Gary wrote uh, that detailed his initial LSD research and uh, with these children. And my guess is that uh, even some of the non-scientists here in the salon would be interested in reading it. Uh, 
And since it is so unique and, I believe, important, rather than just scan it and post it on the web uh, as a, a JPEG or something, I'm going to retype it. You know, it's, it's only about 10 pages long, but it has some detailed tables that will uh, take me a little while to recreate. And uh, then I'll have to get it to Gary to be sure that I've removed all the confidential data in it. But uh, sometime yet this summer, I'll complete that little project and we'll add a link to it on the program notes for this podcast. So if you're interested in reading that paper, just check back at www.psychedelicsalon.org from time to time, and uh, eventually you'll find it there. For you scholars out there, I, I hope that the comment Gary made about the influence of Al Hubbard registered with you. For years now, I've known how pervasive Hubbard's influence was on early psychedelic research, primarily through the stories Myron Stolaroff had told me. And by the way, you can hear some of those stories in the three Lone Pine Stories podcasts that uh, I did with Gene and Myron Stolaroff. But what I hadn't realized is how pervasive Hubbard's influence was in other currents of the early research because it was primarily Al Hubbard's ideas that were used in developing the early treatment protocols. From the big details, like the size of the dose given to participants, down to the small details, like the artwork that was used in the sessions. So should any of you be bold enough, as Al Hubbard was, to sit for a friend's first psychedelic journey, you might want to keep the fact in mind that the patterns you help establish on someone else's early experiences with these substances could have a profound cumulative effect over time. In a way, you can think of psychedelic medicines as a form of a big lever. As Archimedes once said, give me a lever big enough and I can move the world. And believe me, these medicines are incredibly big levers, uh, ones that can most assuredly move worlds. I'll post a copy of the St. Veronica's Veil painting that uh, we referred to and the one that Myron used in his work at the Institute in Menlo Park. Uh, I'll post that on the web so you can get a better idea of the type of uh, art that the early psychedelic pioneers used in their sessions. Again, primarily due to the influence of the notorious Al Hubbard. In the first part of our conversation, as you heard, uh, we were looking at several photos as we talked. And hopefully I'll be able to borrow a laptop and scanner sometime this summer and drive back up to see Gary again and scan some of the pictures with the intention of posting them with the uh, program notes to this podcast so you can get a better idea of what we were talking about. Also, uh, if you go to www.psychedelicsalon.org and uh, look under the program notes for this podcast, which is number 97, you'll uh, find links to many of Gary Fisher's papers, uh, including the ones discussed in this interview. And I'll have more to say about some of Gary's papers in next week's podcast, but uh, if I'm actually going to get this program online yet today, I'm going to have to uh, bring this session of the salon to a close. Before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any uh, questions about that, just click on the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage. And if you have any other questions, complaints, suggestions, whatever, about these podcasts, just send them to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. A big thank you again to Jacques Cordell and Wells, also known as Chatul Hayuk, for the use of your music here in the salon. And thank you. 
Thank you for being a part of this little experiment in virtual community here in Cyberdelic Space. Two years ago today, I posted my first podcast in this series, and within a month or so, uh, there were already over 100 people joining us each week. Today, that number has grown to literally tens of thousands, and yet it still feels like it's just you and me right now. So thanks for being here, and it's not the end of our second year together, but rather it's the beginning of the third year of podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. For now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. And to my dear departed mother, happy birthday, Mom, wherever you are. (laughs) 